0: Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, a podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we are joined by Olivier de Schutter, United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. It's a real honor to have Mr. de Schutter with us. And in our conversation, we cover his new report on the persistence of poverty and also talk about many other issues, including the Global Fund for Social Protection. We had so much to talk about that this episode is extra long. We hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Mr. de Schutter, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. It's a real honor to have you with us, especially given your leading role in the fight against poverty. We have a very broad audience uh, who are all interested in poverty and different people and different organizations joining that fight. And for those who may not be so familiar with what a UN Special Rapporteur does, could you tell our listeners first what your role is as a UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights?
1: Thank you. Very good to be here. Uh, The Special Rapporteur is appointed by the Human Rights Council, the Intergovernmental body comprising 47 states uh, that sits in Geneva to basically deliberate on human rights issues uh, across the UN system. And these are independent experts whose role is to be really the the ears and eyes of the international community, reporting back uh, to the Human Rights Council, to the General Assembly of the UN on what they understand from the theme they are tasked to study. And they are uh, to make recommendations to governments as to how to, in my case, eradicate poverty in a human rights-based perspective. Uh, We do not have any power. We have a limited budget. uh, But we do have the ability to speak out and to use our connections across the UN system to put pressure on governments so that they deliver on their promises.
0: And how, as a special rapporteur, do you decide on your priorities, things that you want to research and highlight and pressure governments?
1: Special rapporteurs are quite free to decide on the topics they wish to explore. And part of our role is really to draw the attention of the governments to certain issues they may find more convenient to ignore. Blind spots in public policies, issues that are ignored, populations that are marginalized and unable to speak up For their rights and so we are ambassadors of these people and spokespersons for those who are uh, not able to influence political processes and that is certainly part of why we are useful i think uh, saying loud uh, what governments would have preferred to remain silent and invisible
0: and so your recent report is about the persistence of poverty and so coming back to the choice of topics why did you decide to focus on this issue at this time
1: Well, it is very shocking that in many countries, in fact, in all countries, but to varying degrees, being born in poverty for a child is a life sentence imposed on that child for a crime that he or she has not committed. In a country such as the UK or Belgium, it takes three to four generations for a child born in poverty to overcome that handicap and to achieve a 50% chance of reaching the mean income within the society in question, because these children face huge obstacles in different areas of life. As children and as adults, you do not have real opportunities if you are born in a low-income family. And in some countries, South Africa, Brazil, it takes nine, 10 generations. In Colombia, it takes 11 generations. And so We still are in a class-based society. And I'm really struck by how increasing the problem is in the sense that in comparison to the 1980s or 1990s, it has become more difficult for people to overcome that disadvantage. And social classes have been growing further apart. Today, people who are wealthy eat in different places. They watch different films. They have different uh, lifestyles than people from the lower middle class or from very low-income households. And the separation, the gap between these social classes has actually increased rather than decreased over the years. And that is what is most troubling and what the report tries to highlight.
0: And you talk about how this is an issue across the world. So in your research that underpins the report, do you see this happening in all countries in the world, whether that's rich countries or poor countries, this sort of pulling apart of people living on lower incomes and those who are wealthier and have more access to resources?
1: This is a worldwide phenomenon. Of course, the mechanisms at work vary across societies. In some countries, the ethnic dimension is stronger than in others. For example, in South Africa, in Brazil, Uh, To a certain extent, in the US, there is a very strong correlation between ethnicity or race and uh, poverty. In other countries, that is less clear. Um, But nevertheless, the phenomenon is, is, is widespread. And I think what happened is that for maybe 30 years, we've been tackling, and we must do so, issues such as racism, such as sexism, such as discrimination on grounds of disability or age, but we've been forgetting to tackle discrimination on grounds of socioeconomic disadvantage. Yet people born in poverty, uh, low-income households in a, in a number of sectors, face obstacles that others do not face to the same extent. And that is what the report tries to address.
0: Right. And so you also look at many factors that play into this persistence of poverty, one of which is the discrimination against people because of low socio-economic status, But you also talk a lot about education, public services. Could you say a little bit more about the factors that you found that really hamper children and families from breaking out of this cycle of poverty?
1: There are essentially four cycles, four vicious cycles that perpetuate poverty that the report tries to highlight. The first one is housing. People in poverty do not choose where they reside. They basically have no option but to move to the low-income neighbourhoods where the rents will be affordable. But these neighbourhoods are generally far away from economic opportunities, from the good jobs, from even good schools and access to culture. Moreover, they live in dwellings that are overpopulated, that are sometimes unsafe and unhealthy. And that has an impact on the life chances of children raised in those neighbourhoods. They have fewer social contacts with uh, role models that might broaden their aspirations. They live in a violent environment, making it more difficult for them to um, have physical exercise. They attend schools that are less well equipped in which their peers are as poor as them. And thus they find it more difficult to make progress. And as young adults, they will have fewer life opportunities because they have um, fewer abilities to have access to employment because of where they are located. And so, housing is a first discriminating factor. The second area is access to good food and, and health services, with all the impacts this had on, on the health of low income families. Children born in poverty have a less diverse diet they have a tendency to develop overweight and obesity as young adults and as adults in later life, which not only means that they have a risk of developing certain non-communicable diseases linked to obesity that are very expensive to treat, particularly diabetes, but in addition, they face discrimination because of that obesity which they have a tendency to develop. So that's a second area in which uh, the disadvantages are documented in the report. The third area is education. We may think of schools as a place where children are given a second chance, a place where they can flourish, learn, and uh, gain confidence in their ability to make a difference in the world. In fact, people in poverty whom I speak to, they tell me that school is a place of exclusion. It's a place where children coming from low-income backgrounds are permanently bullied They experience shame, they experience fear of going to school, and they are permanently judged on their abilities, despite the fact that their departure point is uh, much less advantageous than that of children uh, raised in, in wealthier families. These are kids that arrive at school at three or four years old with a much less rich vocabulary with much fewer books uh, at home, much less encouragement from the parents and sometimes much less nurturing from the parents, which puts them at a serious disadvantage vis-a-vis their peers coming from wealthier families. And I actually spoke to children and to families going through that experience for whom school is something they fear and thus the tendency is to move to educational settings, including special schools that provide technical forms of education, condemning these children to certain jobs that will pay less in later life. And so school is actually a a third area in which discrimination is very strong. And and fourth and finally, of course, there is employment itself. When you are a person raised in poverty, when you don't speak with the right accent, when you don't dress well, When you don't have the cultural codes, it is very difficult to convince an employer to uh, take you at at, uh, his or her service. And um, people with a low income background, they generally are unable to acquire the same level of qualification as others. And the very strong abilities they develop because of their overcoming obstacles they face in everyday life, those abilities, those competences go unrecognized and they're not formalized in a diploma. And so the employers basically will not be easy to convince to recruit these persons or to promote them. And so I look in the report at these various spheres of life in which being raised in poverty is a handicap for life. And one dilemma I've been facing is that some scholars today Identify the links between being raised in poverty and the development of the child's brain. We are witnessing today um, almost a biologization of poverty. The idea is gaining ground that being raised in poverty is like a disability that is impossible to overcome in later life. And part of my report discusses this issue, which I would be delighted to, to delve deeper into.
0: Well, thank you, first of all, for outlining those four factors, which I think do not only give an indication of how many obstacles children and indeed their families face, but also how they interact from where you live to going to school and then moving into work. It all adds up to a picture of disadvantage and certainly not the picture of social mobility that we're often presented by governments. So, yes, I would like to pick up on that last point you made, which I think is very interesting, Because indeed, in my own research, talking about poverty and child poverty and the consequences of all these different disadvantages, there is a lot of interesting research about the psychological and biological and cognitive impacts. But is your argument that this takes the focus away from broader issues or or the the role of society? it, It places the focus too much on the individual
1: I I don't think that is the main problem. I would like to refer here to the line of work that was mostly discussed after the publication of the book of Mulaynathan and Safir, Scarcity, published in 2013, and many other uh, pieces that highlight particularly the fact that when you are raised in poverty, when you face the stress of scarcity, you produce a hormone, cortisol that delays the, the, the development of the brain if uh, produced in, in two important quantities. Now, of course, being able to react to stress is a good thing to protect you from you know, the dangers you face in life, but uh, beyond a certain extent, it, it has counterproductive impacts. And of course, on the one hand, it um, is a powerful argument for doing much more to protect children from uh, the stress of poverty, because of these very serious impacts on the child's development. On the other hand, it does seem to present us with a picture of poverty being a disability that is impossible to overcome because of its uh, biological roots, if you wish, and because of its impact on the development of the child's brain. And my report says basically, yes, it has a very significant impact on the ability for children to develop and actually for people to make the right choices. However, this is not fate. Uh, This is something that can be overcome. We can give children a second chance by investing in early childhood, a third chance by inclusive education, a fourth chance by a basic income given to young adults, and another chance later in life by protecting from discrimination on grounds of poverty. So we should overcome this tendency today to see poverty as something that has irreversible biological consequences on people who face it. So that is, I think, one of the messages of the report. And just to pick up on one thing you said about social mobility being much less real than in the idealized picture of our societies, the report highlights what scientists now describe, economists described as the, the great Gatsby curve, which is the link between inequality in society, on the one hand, and the lack of social mobility, on the other hand. You see, in many contexts, people see inequality as, number one, unavoidable, inevitable to a certain extent, and number two, as even desirable to the extent that it will reward people who invest more in gaining qualifications and in working and so on. But in fact, what research now shows is that in unequal societies, social mobility is not stimulated. Instead, it is discouraged. It is much more difficult to overcome the handicap of being born, for example, in the lowest uh, 10% uh, income earners if there is a high inequality within society then if society is more equal so we must put the fight against inequalities at the very heart of our fight against poverty and we should agree that there is no clear cut distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of result
0: very interesting thank you and many different points there that i would like to pick up on but let me ask you about another issue that you mentioned last week actually in the presentation of your report to the General Assembly and one of the points you you raised last week was about the perpetuation of false beliefs around poverty and people living in poverty and I was wondering whether you could elaborate a little bit about what those false beliefs are but also how they link into these issues of discriminations of people living in poverty or on low incomes and the lack of social mobility increased inequality.
1: This to me is a very important point. It It is how we speak about poverty, how poverty is framed in public discourse, and the impact this has on our ability to address it effectively. In substance, we have a tendency to describe, particularly in the anglophone world, anti-poverty policies as welfare policies that only benefit people in, in poverty and not society as a whole, and certainly not the relatively better-off middle class within society. And that is extremely problematic because it weakens the social support for anti-poverty policies as many voters, the median voter, will not see it as in his or her interest to support these anti-poverty policies if they benefit uh, people in poverty alone. In the current... Toolbox we have to fight poverty. The general tendency is to see poverty as something that should be addressed by economic growth combined with taxation and redistribution. In other terms, tax and transfer policies, a Robin Hood approach if you wish to combating poverty. And that requires support from the middle class to progressive taxation schemes and to robust uh, social policies. But that support will uh, disappear, will, will be weakened significantly if we continue to describe these policies as not benefiting society as a whole, and if we continue to describe people in poverty as responsible for their own condition, as people who have acquired poor qualifications, have not studied enough, people who failed to seize opportunities, people who made the wrong choices, and thus should not be supported because, after all, the poverty that they complain of or they suffer from is a result of their own misgivings and their own wrong choices. Uh, So instead of treating poverty, we then have a tendency to shame people in poverty for their condition, to attribute to them the responsibility of their predicament at the risk of de-responsibilizing society. And so the report very clearly says we should emphasize that equality is in the interest of society as a whole, as demonstrated brilliantly, for example, by... Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett and the Equality Trust in the UK. And we should emphasize that poverty is a failure, not of the individual, but of society. It is the price we pay as societies for not being able to build an inclusive enough economy that rewards each individual by recognizing that all can contribute to the well-being of society and to social progress in general. And we should stop saying that social protection is a disincentive to work. Rather, it is an obstacle to risk taking by people and to the building of human capital. If you don't have social protection, you will invest much less in acquiring qualifications by pursuing uh, education and, and furthering studies. Social protection is really an insurance mechanism that should allow all people to better plan their lives, to invest in the future, and to overcome shocks in times of economic crisis. And that is the change in the discourse around poverty that we, must, uh, that we must achieve. And I think politicians here have a major responsibility. They must speak differently about poverty. They should not shame, responsibleize or blame people in, in poverty for their condition. They should instead look at how society can help them better.
0: Very clear, and an important points you make there. But I also wanted to ask a little bit more about how we shift opinions about poverty and the support needed, the policies needed, when referring to, for example, welfare or social protection. So you mentioned politicians uh, should change their language. We should all think about it as a society's problem rather than an individual's problem. Is this just about changing language, talking about policies, anti-poverty policies differently, or is it also about making policies more universal. So for example, I think one of your recommendations is to have a basic income for young people as they shift from education into work to support their building of livelihoods, if you will. So how do you see that relationship between language on the one hand and changing it, and on the other hand, the actual policies and maybe having more universal approaches rather than stricter targeting?
1: Language shapes the perception of the problem and results in a particular way of framing the issue. And of course it has an impact on policies, but the policies matter and language matters because it influences policies. And quite clearly, one of the major issues we face is whether we should adopt minimalistic social protection policies that very narrowly target people in poverty so that they, and they only shall benefit from certain levels of support and not too much please because they should not result these protections in a disincentive to work or whether instead we adopt a much more universalizing approach to social protection as we do in the fields of education and health. In the UK, you have the National Health Service that provides healthcare to all the population without this being narrowly targeted to those who cannot pay healthcare for themselves. And I think the more universal a policy is the less stigmatizing it will be for those who use those services and benefit from those policies, and the wider it shall be uh, supported, or the better it shall be supported by the wider population. This is what uh, Corpi and Palme, in a famous article of 1998, referred to as the paradox of redistribution. They say essentially that if we have very narrowly targeted policies that help the poor alone, we may actually benefit them less than if we have more universal policies, simply because the more universal policies will be better financed, thanks to the support of the median voter, the middle class, for much more generously funded policies that uh, reduce reduce poverty and and, uh, provide welfare to the population. So I think it's important to avoid falling into the trap that the most narrow focused targeting is the better approach because of the more efficient use of the public resources it will result in. In fact, one area which I'm now exploring and which I will discuss in a report in early 2022 is the issue of the non-takeup of rights. In other terms, the very widespread phenomenon by which people who should benefit from child allowances, maternity benefits, unemployment benefits, for example, will not claim those benefits either because of a lack of information or because of the fear of stigmatization or shame that leads people who would normally benefit from these schemes not to um, claim those benefits and and thus uh, not to be helped. And part of the explanation for non-takeable rights is that people feel stigmatized and ashamed if the policy is narrowly targeted towards them, for example, because they are based on uh, an assessment of their means. And so Um, I think to combat the phenomenon of non-take-up of rights, we should design broadly conceived policies as universal in their coverage as possible, although we should pay special attention to people in poverty who face specific obstacles in having access to public services and to social protection.
0: Absolutely. If I can ask you a little bit more about what the, the policy mix may look like in supporting people in poverty as well as providing policies that benefit the society as a whole, including, for example, universal income. In your report, you provide various recommendations, and they range from investment in, in early education as this basic income for young people we just mentioned, but also strengthening parenting skills or supporting parents in providing early childhood stimulation, because it's so important. But we also just spoke about this issue of how poverty causes stress, how it's produces a cortisol hormone, how it can impede cognitive function. And so there's this tension between policies that recognize the structural, say we have to give people the resources to be able to take risk, for example, and build their lives, And some of the more individualized policies that look at, for example, whether there are aspirations in place, whether people have the right skills, but also whether parents um, have the right information about how to feed their children or how to stimulate their growth. How do you see this mix of policies, the more structural pieces, as well as maybe some more of the individualized pieces, which then, of course, tap into the age-old debate about structure and, and agency of individuals?
1: I think these are really important questions, and one of the problematic consequences of an approach to poverty that leads to biologize it, as in the work of Malanathan and Safir, is that people in poverty, including the parents, are considered not to be in a position to make the right choices for their children. That is extremely problematic, and I have been avoiding the expression, for example, of the intergenerational transmission of poverty, because I don't want to blame the parents for the legacy of poverty they are leaving to the children, which is what the expression intergenerational transmission of poverty, in fact, conveys. Instead, I say very clearly in the report that parents should be supported in their role and that the choice is not to either do nothing for the child and taking the risk that the child will not be supported effectively within His or her family, or on the other hand, having a very strong, intrusive intervention of social services in the family based on the consideration that parents do not know what to do um, and how to best nurture and support the child's development. We should avoid being trapped in that false dilemma. We should help the parents, but fully uh, respecting their role as parents in nurturing the child. And in fact, many of the Difficulties that children born in low-income families may experience can be compensated by a nurturing environment in which parents are fully supported and in which social services, rather than monitoring, rather than supervising, uh, rather than blaming the, the parents for not doing what must be done with the children, actually supporting them and helping them to overcome the obstacles.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think it also comes out in some of the other conversations that have been featured on this podcast, talking about potential benefits, for example, of policies that try to stimulate aspirations, but also the pitfalls, thereby completely individualizing the problem.
1: What we certainly do underestimate, and this uh, is based on the many conversations we could have as a team with people in poverty in preparation of this report, is the extraordinarily high degree of suspicion between low-income families on the one hand and the social services on the other hand. As a result, I think in some countries, particularly Scandinavian countries, uh, the UK, of exceedingly intrusive social services that, because of their noble intention of providing protection to the child, neglect family life and breed distrust with the families are meant to support. And I think that is one explanation, certainly, for the failure for many families to seek support and to actually benefit from the kind of support they normally should have a right to. And I think we should be much more attentive to separating the roles of social services between supporting families on the one hand, which they must do, and on the other hand, ensuring that the families do not abuse the system, Uh, do not put the child at risk, do not make the choices that could uh, be detrimental to the child's development, for example. And perhaps we should think about um, how these different functions could be better separated from one another to avoid mistrust growing further.
0: Now, you mentioned in the beginning that you do this work to influence governments to highlight issues that they either do not see that are blind spots or they possibly willingly want to ignore as well. So I noticed last week after your presentation to the General Assembly, various representatives from countries across the world welcomed your report and also said, we need to focus more on the persistence of poverty. But of course, in terms of the factors that you identify that are issues that play into this persistence and some of the recommendations are quite controversial or can be quite controversial, ask governments to do things quite differently. What kind of response have you been getting to your report and the findings and the recommendations in recent weeks and and what will you expect to come out in coming months
1: i think we should realize that supporting children in poverty is not a cost except in a purely accounting short-term perspective it is an investment in the future and it has huge returns for society to invest in children because it strengthens social cohesion, it improves the quality of the workforce, it spares society a large number of costs that uh, unemployment and associated depression and violence do inflict upon society. And the report highlights the work, for example, of the Nobel laureate, uh, the economist James Heckman, who emphasizes the importance of investing in early childhood. Uh, But it also emphasizes that um, there is money that societies can spend on combating child poverty because wealth inequality remains unaddressed. And one of the recommendations that is perhaps one of the most controversial ones of the report is that young adults between 18 and 25 years old should be granted a basic income unconditionally in order to avoid any form of stigmatization. And that basic income is in my view, the best way to avoid that only children raised in relatively affluent families will be able to study for higher education and, and for you know, five, seven years. And we will be able to start their adult working life in a position which corresponds to their real talents and desires rather than in order to make money. And I think that basic income for young adults is something that could be financed by increasing the taxation on inheritance. In our societies, people inherit at around 50 or 55 years old. They do not need this money for the most part. And yet, in most societies, the taxation rates on inheritance are very low and do not uh, reach a level sufficient to reduce the inheritance and transmission of wealth inequalities. And so I think that is something we we should further explore is whether we should not give young adults a, a chance to succeed in life that does not depend on their family background and on the wealth they can expect to receive from their parents after the parent's uh, disease.
0: Interesting. And, and I imagine it's controversial for two reasons. One is the aspect of giving a basic income to a demographic that I think in a lot of countries is overlooked where there is relatively little right they have to welfare and social protection because they're thought to be moving into work. And then on the other hand, because of how the resources are generated through this inheritance tax. If I can also pick up on the issue of financing social protection, because that's your other big focus is the Global Fund for Social Protection. And especially also because we've been talking about making programs and policies more universal, which is something that we could think of maybe more so in rich countries than in poorer countries. Is the Global Fund for Social Protection supportive of universal approaches to social protection in poorer countries, or is it a mechanism to put basic social protection programs in place across the world, or a mix of both?
1: The Global Fund for Social Protection is an idea that has its departure point in the realization that in many developing countries are huge gaps in the social protection system. And worldwide, about 44% of the population only has access to some form of social protection whatsoever. In other terms, 56% of the population has no social protection whatsoever. No child allowances, no maternity benefits, no unemployment benefits, no disability grants, no old age pension. That is a huge gap and this economic crisis induced by the COVID-19 pandemic has basically served to highlight those enormous gaps in the social protection systems in many parts of the world. Now why is this so? Well governments have never put this at the top of their political priorities and they have had no incentive to really invest in people by strengthening social protection for their population. And so the Global Fund is, is a mechanism that should provide them with exactly this incentive so that they rank social protection at the top of the list of political priorities alongside with the provision of healthcare and education in particular. I think it's hugely important. It was actually a proposal now endorsed by the International Labour Organization, the, International Labour Conference at its uh, June 2021 annual meeting adopted a resolution in support of the fund. And I'm confident, therefore, that the ILO shall, in the next few months, work towards putting up this mechanism. Of course, it will need to be financed, and developing countries will need to demonstrate how they plan to establish social protection floors and to expand coverage in time so that all the population benefits. But provided those plans they present are credible, the international community should step in to commit to finance the kick-starting, at least, of this process in order to provide this incentive countries need to put much more efforts into protecting their population from economic insecurity. It's extremely important that countries can benefit from some predictability in funding, in order to provide them with this incentive. And that is essentially what the Global Fund seeks to achieve. And I'm very proud that we are making progress on this, uh, thanks to a huge mobilization of unions across the world, and to the support of many governments from all parts of the world.
0: Absolutely very encouraging to see this moving forward. And if a crisis, maybe not on the scale of the pandemic, but in-country crises will happen again if there is mechanism like this in place that will help countries that will be hugely beneficial. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. To wrap up, I would like to ask you a final question, which is to appeal to the listeners of this podcast who come from all over the world, who are interested in the issue of poverty, who live poverty, or who study it, and who might think, how can I contribute to the cause of fighting poverty and what role can I play? Do you have recommendations and advice for people to be part of this?
1: I think it is very uh, key that people in poverty are involved in designing the policies that are meant to benefit them, implementing these policies and assessing them so that they produce the outcomes expected. Many mistakes would have been avoided if we had involved people in poverty in identifying the problem and identifying the solutions. And much time would have been saved if we had done this from the start. And so for me, the single most effective way to make progress in this direction is to basically ensure that in decision-making processes at all levels, from the municipality to the national level, and not only within the political process, but also within educational institutions and and companies, we make sure that people in poverty's views are taken into account in making decisions. For example, how can an employer understand the background of people in poverty in making recruitment choices? How can universities ensure that students from an underprivileged socioeconomic background can actually uh, be given the chance to study in appropriate conditions? How can we ensure that a particular development project will take into account the impacts on people in poverty who may not benefit from the general economic progress that may result from a particular investment? And I think participation, therefore, is key, and, and therefore involving yourself in politics at all levels is, I think, extremely important.
0: Very clear and a great note to end on. Mr. de thank you very much for talking with us today. We look forward to hearing much more from you in the future and the great work that you do.
1: Many thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you liked what you heard, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts. And please also leave us a review or comments. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you'll join us again next time.